What is it like to be black? I don't know how to be a different race. So, um, I guess me, I grew up in a place where I could just be myself. So I basically know being me, um, not necessarily being a certain race. Yeah. I guess I don't know what it's like to be like anybody else. So um, that is the that's the thing. I have no comparison. So I don't know what I'm missing out on and what I'm not. I think just like we're all the same. Um, the difference is obviously with the color of our skins, but. Um, I think we ha- we experience the same things in terms of like our bodies and stuff like that. I think it depends with uh, the social context. I mean, uh, we are both Zimbabweans, you know. So in Zimbabwe, uh, it's, there isn't basically much of a difference between whether you're, you're black or you're white because we have kind of dealt with that kind of issue. But when you come to a country like South Africa where, you know, it's kind of really evident that whites have a kind of a superior life to to blacks and this whole apartheid thing it's still still resonates in people's minds you know so i think there's a difference it depends with the social context if you go to even to america you know this whole black lives matter thing it's still an issue but it just depends with the context i think the way you are just that i'm not white so i don't know how you people uh, white people you know how what it is like to be a white person but from what I see, people, it's, it's normal. It's just, we are, I think we are the same people. We just have different skin color. Yeah. They can want to, they can try, they can watch it, read about it, talk about it, blog about it. They can weep over its injustices, march in solidarity with its victims, use the right phrases and hashtags, even show homage for its music and culture. But just as non-parents can never fully understand the experience of actually being parents, forget the my brother has kids thing, it ain't the same, so too can whites never fully grasp the day-to-day, can't turn it off, always their experience of being black in America. This is an extract from No, White People Will Never Understand the Black Experience by Lorraine Wilkie, who is ironically a white woman. Jason, what do you think about this quote? Yeah, so, I mean, the claim is that black people have a certain experience of the world that white people can never grasp. Right, this is going to form the subject matter of our discussion. We're going to be asking, is there that crucial thing, that essential element of black experience that isn't common to white experience? And we're going to be saying we're skeptical about this. Just to note, both Cecilia and I are not black, That doesn't necessarily mean we're white, but we're not black. So the question is, um, given that we're not black, can we even be talking about what it's like to be black? And the racial identitarian is going to say no. They're going to say it's impossible. Mm. Well, we can't not talk about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a podcast. So we are going to talk about it. But in order to answer the question, we're going to look at important pop culture and influential literature to get a sense of answers to this question. Right. And by the end of the episode, we're also going to throw into question this idea that we, in principle, cannot answer this question. The reason why is we're not going to say that we can answer the question. We're going to say no one can answer the question. We're going to say there is no good answer to the question. What is it like to be black, whether you're black or white answering the question? So stay tuned to see how we get to this position. (laughs) Right. The question, what is it like to be black, seems to have been answered in two different ways. 
Firstly, there's been this answer suggesting that being black goes with having a particular kind of experience of the world. An oppressed experience. Right, exactly, an oppressed experience. And secondly, there's another answer, and that's around how perception works in the world, that there's a black way of perceiving the world versus a white way of perceiving the world, a black way of knowing and being and going through the world. Right. So there's these two different aspects. The one is how the world impacts black people, so their experience of being oppressed. And the second is how they see the world through their own eyes, their perception of the world. And the claim is that on both of those counts, black people are different from white people. Yeah. And to look at how this is the case or what exactly is suggested that is different, we've looked at a particular piece, which is called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, which is probably known to quite a few people by Peggy McIntosh, who lists 50 ways in which white privilege manifests. And basically, she characterizes the black experience in relation to these. Let's take a look at some of the points that she makes. Number one, she talks about the world being primarily designed for white people. She mentions things like band-aids being the color of beige flesh as opposed to being brown. Then she also looks at everyday racial prejudice that she claims black people encounter every day, whereas white people don't. And she says, for example, you know, if a traffic cop pulls me over or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be pretty sure that I haven't been singled out because of my race. She talks about unequal distribution of resources. Right. And she she says, if I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and which I would want to live. By the way, Peggy McIntosh is white. Yes. So she's saying, I can do this as a white woman, but uh, black people couldn't do this because they don't have the resources that exactly. white people have. She also talks about financial trust, which is an interesting point. So she says white people are by default more trusted financially than black people. And she says... Whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of my financial reliability. Whereas black people are distrusted by default. Right. That's the, the claim implied by hers. Then she also talks about black people rarely seeing their race adequately represented in entertainment and social media. She says, I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. She also continues and says that white people are more readily taken seriously and their opinions are more respected than black people. So she says things like, I can be pretty sure of having my voice heard in a group in which I'm the only member of my race. And she says that black people are more likely to be taken as an instance of a type. In other words, they're asked to answer for their race as a whole. So black people are confronted and asked, what are your views and opinions and beliefs on X? And the assumption is that all black people will hold those beliefs or perceptions of X. So this is one way in which the identitarian movement characterizes what is supposedly a black experience of the world. And now what, what we're going to do is we're just going to set the scene of what some identitarian authors claim to be the perception of the world that is particular to black people. Well, we have South African academic Samantha Weiss, who, for example, writes about how white South Africans ought to adopt, and I quote here, a silence in the political realm as the morally decent policy to prevent one's whitely perspective from causing further distortion in the political and public context. So what she's saying is that given that the white perception is distorted, mm. it must be, be in some way false. Mm. And the assumption there is that the black perception of the world isn't distorted. 
So whites and blacks perceive the world differently and whites are misperceiving the world. And how does the identitarian movement come to posit this accurate versus inaccurate view of the world? So the idea is that because whites are traditionally and historically oppressors mm. and blacks are historically and traditionally the oppressed, mm. black people have an understanding of the world or an epistemic access to the world that white mm. people lack. They can understand the world in a more multifaceted way because white people thrust upon black people certain beliefs mm. which they have to internalize, they have to believe in order to function in the world. But at the same time, they can see that those beliefs are being thrust upon them and they've got an understanding of what their prior beliefs were before those white beliefs were thrust upon them. But white people, on the other hand, don't have black beliefs thrust upon them because they don't need those black beliefs to function in a white world, as Samantha Vice calls it. Right. And Charles Mills, who wrote the book, The Racial Contract, writes all about this. And ultimately what it comes down to is this idea of power. So you have the, you have the powerful group, the oppressor group, who is oppressing the oppressed group. And the one is the white group and the other is the black group. And Jason and I have discussed this in our previous episode, which is all about power relations. So if you're interested in this particular topic, please do go back to that podcast. And we're skeptical about power. Right. So we're skeptical that white people do have power in the way that identity politicians think that white people have power and we're skeptical that black people lack power right. in the way that identity politicians think yeah. but assuming for the moment that these power relations do exist that's what we're doing we're saying assume they exist now are black people's experiences different from white people's experiences? Exactly and on that note what we also need to just point out is that we're obviously skeptical also of the notion of race to begin with. Correct. And that we discuss in our first episode. Correct. So you can always just go back to that one to find out why it is that we are skeptical of the notion of race. But all. we're assuming for the purposes of this podcast that race exists and that power structures exist, but we're mm -hmm. still skeptical that there's something it is like to be black, both in terms of experience and in terms of perception. So we've now looked at the this idea of there being a black way of perceiving the world and it really is related to this uh, this uh, particular identitarian um, take on power I'll just quote Charles Mills here because it's a quite a quite a nice pithy quote that summarizes what Jason was just saying about power he writes that uh, in understanding the workings of a system of oppression a perspective from the bottom up is more likely to be accurate than one from the top down so there again you've just got this idea of black people's perspectives being more accurate of the world than white people's perspectives who white widely have embraced this epistemology of ignorance, which is widely written about in what some people would term philosophical circles. Right. So, so far, we've just given the position. Right. Okay. So we've given the position in terms of experience and perception, experience through Peggy McIntosh's 50 um, items in her knapsack, and Charles Mills and uh, Samantha Weiss in terms of perception. And now we are going to be turning to the problems with this position. I think let's start off with the issues that we have around the experience of what it's like to be black. Right. So first off, it seems like just prima facie, in other words, before we do any investigation, it seems like black people on the whole are going to have different experiences between them. There's not one singular black experience. There's going to be lots of different experiences. And what we're going to be arguing is that there's no single factor or set of factors that's both necessary and sufficient 
for having an experience that's a black experience. So what we're saying is there's no experience that every black person has, and there's no set of experiences that only black people have, neither necessary nor sufficient. So what we're going to do is we're going to delve into three points that Peggy McIntosh sort of claims are prototypical of the black experience and look at why these don't satisfy necessary and sufficient conditions. Yeah, and it should apply to all of her points, but these are probably her three strongest points. So we'll be Correct. focusing on these. But Jason, just up front, what if our listeners sort of say to us, okay, hang on a second, why are you looking at Peggy McIntosh, who is writing in an American context? Why are you <laughs> applying this stuff to South Africa? Obviously, it's different. Is that This seems like an illegitimate move. How are we going to respond to that? Right. So the point is that if Macintosh and others are claiming that there is a singular black experience, blackness exists all over the world, according to racial identitarians. It's not only in South Africa. There's a history of oppression in the United States, in Africa, all in Europe, all over the place. There's the, there's the, the British Empire, which oppressed black people. So the idea is that there must be this singular experience that stretches across space. And if there isn't, then the question is, why isn't there? And the reason why there isn't isn't because there's the singular black experience, but because there are these other factors in these different locations that are doing the work. So, for example, if the experience of being black in America is different from the experience of being black in South Africa, then it seems like there isn't a singular black experience. There's only an experience that's explained by different factors in different societies. So I think we're perfectly within our rights to use American racial identitarian theory in South Africa today that stretches across time because supposedly the black experience stretches across time and across place. So we're granting this. We're granting this to get off the ground in terms of our arguments here. And in fact, if you look at academics who are, you know, working in this particular field, you'll see that there's just an importing one-on-one -on -one from the American context and an application to the South African context, which then again implies that the movement really does hold this view that there is this universal thing that it's like to be black, regardless of context. Right. So let's dig in to, to these claims and, and we're now going to be giving, giving some objections. So far we've given the position and now we're going to be objecting to right. it. Right. Okay. Let's look at, as you say, the three sort of strongest points that Peggy McIntosh lists. One of them being prejudice. Okay. So, so, so how do we tackle this issue of prejudice? Why does this not meet the necessary condition for blackness? So the problem is that not all black people are going to experience the level of prejudice that Peggy McIntosh says they experience. So in the Institute of Race Relations survey, they reported that black respondents said that race and racism is one of the least worrisome aspects of their lives in South Africa today. There were many other factors that were more important, including mm. job security, the point is that racism isn't a, 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 an enormous part of a person's experience today in South Africa. Macintosh is probably going to say something like, or let's not even just say Macintosh, let's just talk about identitarians in general. They might respond with the following point that just because racism isn't one of the most worrisome things, that doesn't imply that it's not part of their experience. And how would we deal with a point like that? According to Peggy McIntosh, mm. being prejudiced or, or having experience of facing prejudice mm. is inherent to the black experience, and the black experience is one of oppression. So what I'm saying is that although some people might experience that, not all black people experience that, which mm. means it's not necessary to the black experience. 
how is prejudice not sufficient for blackness? Right. So the thing is that black people are not the only people that have been oppressed. They're not the only people who faced prejudice. So, for example, Jews in, in, in the Holocaust faced massive prejudice. Their resources were stripped from them. They were dis, displaced and murdered. And there's, there's no doubt that they have an experience, Jewish people have an experience of, of feeling oppressed. I say this as someone who, who went to a Jewish day school, grew up with a very strong message that there's rampant anti-Semitism in the world. By the way, I'm skeptical about that, but, but the point is that Jews definitely have the experience of feeling prejudice, even if maybe they, their experience doesn't match reality fully. The point is they have the experience and black people are saying they have that experience as well. So the point is that the experience of being oppressed isn't sufficient for being black because white, some white people, namely Jewish people, experience it too. In addition to Jewish people being oppressed in the past, we might say that white people are oppressed today. So racial identitarians are constantly harping on about how white people should feel ashamed of their race, that they have committed atrocities in the past and so they should feel this shame. And that seems to suggest that if a person is white, which is something they can't control, um, if someone today is born white, they are going to experience prejudice. I think you may have said oppressed, but I, I know that you meant uh, prejudiced. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I wonder if it is oppression. So, so white people are not allowed to speak in certain contexts today. That seems oppressive to me. White people's jobs are, their ap- job applications are denied. That seems oppressive to me. On all the measures that identitarians say black people have been oppressed, not on all the measures, but on some of the measures, white people are being oppressed today. Now, you might say that that oppression is not nearly as severe, and that's true. That's absolutely true. But the point is they may have an experience of being prejudiced against. Let's take a look at this point that white people should feel shame and be and be silent because they're white. I guess what the identitarian might want to say is that white people deserve to be ashamed because they have this sordid historical past about which they really need to feel repentant. Right. So the problem with that response is that – so the claim is that there's a difference – between black people's experience of prejudice and white people's experience of prejudice. Black people's feelings of prejudice are justified, whereas white people's feelings of prejudice are not justified because they deserve to feel oppressed. They deserve to feel prejudiced against. Why? Because white people did awful things, right? Apartheid was caused by white people. It was perpetrated by white people, not by black people. And so white people deserve it, not black people. So the problem with this response is that it cites historical facts rather than experience as being of primary importance. So the racial identitarian is saying that certain social facts or certain historical facts are more important than certain experiences. But identity politicians are supposedly prioritizing experience over anything else. So in other words, for example, if in South Africa we have legislation that helps black people, the identitarian is going to ask black people, has this legislation helped you and how do you feel? What is your experience of being in South Africa? And if the black person responds by saying, I'm having a negative experience, I still feel oppressed, I feel prejudiced against, whether or not that legislation does in fact prejudice against them, the racial identitarian is going to say that's what's important. It's not important what the legislation says. It's, ex- it's important what the black person's experience of that legislation is. But 
that's inconsistent with the claim that white people's experience is irrelevant and all that matters is historical facts. You can't have metaphysical double standards. You can't say that experience is more important than facts for black people, but facts are more important than experience for white people. Right. That just doesn't gel. Well, there would be no reason for that. We mm. couldn't provide a good argument for that position. Yeah, for why we look at one in the one case and not in metaphysics the Metaphysics doesn't bend. Metaphysics is like, is like the laws of, of, of nature. It's like, it's like gravity. Gravity doesn't change depending on whether it's a white or a black person walking on the ground. Metaphysics doesn't change whether it's a white or a black person's history we're considering. So let's move on to... Another point that Peggy McIntosh makes, which is around financial distrust. So McIntosh argues that black people face financial distrust that white people just don't. What can we say in terms of this in the case of South Africa? So today we in South Africa, I mean, she's absolutely right in the past that legislation internationally operated systematically and perniciously to, to harm black people's financial interests. There's no doubt she's correct about that. The question is, is that the case today? And it seems like it's not. So, for example, in South Africa, black people, according to our BEE, our affirmative action, racialized affirmative action policies, prioritize black people's participation in business and in financial interactions above white people's. Certain interactions in South Africa, certain business deals can't happen unless black people are present. I guess that is not inconsistent with their nonetheless being financial distrust based on race. So you could easily imagine like a racist guy who is now cutting a deal with a black guy and he's doing so well because the law obliges him to do so, but he's certainly doing so distrustfully. So he's, there's still this, you know, underlying distrust. I mean, you do get racist. So what do we, what do we say about that? Sure. So there might be individual racists. I mean, I'm not going to deny that. You're going to have individual racists. By the way, you're going to have individual black racists too. We, we recorded an episode you can listen to on whether it is possible for a black person to be racist. Right. And we argued that. One could. So I, I'm not denying the possibility that there are individual racists, mm. black or white. Mm. Um, and that they, of course, exist. So we're not, we're not even saying we're denying the possibility. We know that they are there. You know, they exist there. Sure. That's, that's the way the world works. Unfortunately, sure. there are these individual races. But what we really are looking at is this claim of systematic racism. Correct. So the question we're going to ask is then, if, if there is legislation in place today that favors black people, why do we not, not just equalizes their rights, but favors them over white people in terms of racialized affirmative action? Why think that black people are systemically distrusted financially? And possibly the best evidence that Macintosh or a racial identitarian could provide is home loan statistics. So of those home loans that are applied for by um, applicants of different races, which applicants are rewarded home loans and which are not? And is there a systematic difference in the, the granting of home loan rates between white people and black people? And yes, there is. So if we have a look at statistics in the United States, for example, in 2015, overall across all racial groups, 12.4% of applicants were denied home loans. But 27.6% of black applicants were denied home loans and only 10.4% of applicants who were white were denied home loans. Right. And that looks like quite a significant difference. So it's almost triple. It's 10 versus 27%. Exactly. So I guess the identitarian would suggest that, well, this kind of looks like 
there is major racial distrust going on here and that black people are being denied home loans based on their race, right? Yes, because in order to grant you a home loan, we have to, as the bank, trust you. So this seems to be a measure of trust in right. society. On the face of it, you know, some people would say, whoa, you know, this looks quite racist. What exactly are these statistics showing us? Yeah, so the question is, what what criteria are the banks using to deny these home loans? So it is absolutely true that in the past, the banks, and when I say the past, I don't mean yesterday, I don't mean two years ago, I mean decades past, the banks definitely did grant home loans based on, on race. There were certain areas in the United States and in South Africa where black people were not allowed to own property. So banks were not allowed to grant home loans in those areas. And that's that's indisputable and absolutely correct. The question is, today is that the case? Today, the banks supposedly grant home loans on other factors, factors other than race. So they're Four primary factors that they grant home loans on are credit score, down payment size, employment history and income. But of course, you know, these might vary in context. They look at evidently factors which seem to be good indicators for whether a person will or will not be paying back their loans. And these are very, these are, you know, these are numbers. Yes, so um, actuaries have a look at all the people who have repaid their home loans in the past and those who have not, regardless of race, and they found that those who do not repay their home loans are strongly predicted by these four factors. So what are you what are you saying? So I'm saying that because of possible – well, not possible, definite historic injustice, black applicants on average are going to score lower on those four factors than white people are on average. Of course, individuals would be different because not all black applications are denied. 27% are denied. So today, banks are not making home loan granting decisions based on the race of the applicants. They're making decisions based on their credit factors, these four factors. And it just so happens that black people on average score lower on these factors than white applicants. Okay, but you're not saying this is a universal law that holds true all the time. Well, I'm saying that possibly because of historic injustice, black people were placed in a position where they did not have the opportunities and resources that white people had, and that caused them today to lack certain credit features. For example, one of those features is can you have someone who signs a loan for you, co-signs a loan? Do you have a backer? So, for example my parents could co-sign a loan with me. I pay, but if I were to default, the bank can go after my parents and they know my parents have money. It's more likely that they have money if they're white than if they're black. Okay, hang on a second, Jason. So I think identitarians may well claim that these kinds of statements sound pretty racist and racist for two reasons. Number one, there seems to be some sort of implication that black people are less capable than white people and this is why they don't score as well as white people. So that's something that I see that could be raised. And, and, and I think we should just point out that we're not making any sort of statement about the relative capacities of white and black people. We're not trying to say that black people are less capable than white people and so should not be allowed a home loan. Yeah, and we're going to revisit that point because it is a really important point, and I think it's a point where a lot of conversations fall apart. We'll we'll treat it with the, the care that it deserves, and we'll look at that just now. The second way in which... 
identitarians may claim that these sort of statements are racist is that it suggests that banks may have a profile and that if this is the way scores look, that they'll have a black person walk into the bank and think, okay, well, this guy's going to be denied because he's black. So there might be this racial profiling going on. There's no, there's no reason to think that the banks are using these profiles. So one reason to think they're not is that not all black applicants are denied home loans. If all black applicants were denied home loans, then the only feature that would be doing explanatory work for why they're denying those home loans is the fact that they're black. But a lot of black home loans are granted, the majority. So it can't be the fact that they're black that's determining whether or not they're granted. It must be these other factors. And the question is, when you take these four factors into account, do they fully explain the bank's decisions? And it seems like they do. That seems like a pretty good good response. Let's deal with number one, which is to assert that if black people aren't scoring as well as white people, that this on is, average, on average, right, exactly. And this is, and this is also, it's it's such a relative claim. It's not something that holds across time, across space. Correct. It's relative to historic circumstances. Right. So you're going to find in those places where black people have been historically oppressed, right. black people are going to score lower on average on certain credit score score measures. This seems commonsensical because if you've been denied resources and opportunities in the past, it's likely to have this effect. Later on. But we're not saying that black people are inherently distrustful. We're not saying that or inherently. Distrusted. Yes, and we're not saying that they lack the capacity to repay a home loan. Right. We're exactly. saying that because of historic injustice, they're being put in a position where they're less likely to be able to pay back a home loan, not because there's some inherent feature of blackness, but because of historic injustice. Okay, so, so maybe the identitarian will say race isn't necessarily a direct cause in the denial of home loan applications, but it's certainly an indirect cause. Okay, so Macintosh might concede, the racial identitarian might concede, that race is not a direct cause for whether or not the bank decides to give you a home loan, grant you a home loan. But the direct cause might be these four factors of of your debt and, and your credit score, your employment, but 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 the point is that race is not doing the direct work. These are doing the direct work. But we've granted, and Macintosh might hammer this point home, that it's historic injustice and racism that's the indirect cause. It has caused black people not to have these these factors, these factors that allow them to apply for a home loan. And so really, ultimately, racism is to blame. Ultimately, a person's race is the reason why they're not being granted the home loan. Right. And now the question is, how does one deal with a response like that? So philosophers, you know, it's, it's very difficult in philosophy and it's a very contentious issue um, how far back in a causal chain you should go when explaining an event. So, for example, let's say you drop your, your, your water bottle on the floor right now. Mm. Should we say that the cause of you dropping your water bottle is that you had a momentary lapse in attention. In other words, your di- the direct cause, mm. what happened just before it. Or should we say the cause is that, well, you didn't get a good night's sleep last night. Or maybe that last month you had flu. Or that a year ago um, someone talked to you about bottles. Or maybe that the Big Bang happened. Right, The Big Bang happened many, many millennia ago, and that ultimately led to a cause, which led to a cause, which led to a cause, which led to you dropping your bottle. The yeah, question which is, led to your existence, which led to you being in a particular room, which led to you holding a particular bottle right. and then dropping it. So, so there seems to be some point at which we should no longer go back mm. in explaining what's happening today. The question is, where is that point? Mm. And there's a useful analogy, again, with Jewish people in the Holocaust when okay. looking at home loans. So... 
Jewish people were dispossessed of their possessions. They were oppressed in ways that black people say that they've been oppressed, and they have been oppressed in such ways. But the Jewish example during the Holocaust is significant because there's no doubt that that Jews were oppressed in all the ways that black people saying they're oppressed, and perhaps some other ways. They were they were systematically murdered. So when a Jewish person walks into a bank today and asks for a home loan, and let's say that home loan is denied, the question is, is that home loan being denied because they're Jewish? Is that home loan being denied because of their past, because of the injustice and the oppression that Jewish people faced? Or is it being denied because of factors that that person lacks today? For example, their credit rating, their employment history, their debt. It seems like in that case we'd want to say, no, if you if you didn't get the loan, it's because those factors were missing, not because you were oppressed during the Holocaust. Yeah, and, not because you're Jewish. And not because you're Jewish. So the point is that we, in the Jewish case, we don't want to go back to the historic injustice to explain the home loan denial today. So why in the black case do we want to do that? And my suggestion is that there's no good reason for not doing it in the Jewish case, but for doing so in the black case. We're making an arbitrary explanation here. We're going too too far back in the causal chain when it comes to black people, but we're not going that far back in the case of Jewish people, and those intuitions are clashing. So really what we're trying to say is that when you're trying to explain someone's actions or explain an event in the world, look at the direct causes of that event. Look at what's happening right then. Look at the fact that the applicant has certain credit scores or doesn't have certain credit scores. Don't go back in time so many generations back in order to get at that person's indirect causes for the event. Look at direct causes instead. And that's not denying the weight of the indirect causes or the existence of these indirect causes. Correct. We are, we are absolutely acknowledging them and saying, you know, they they have played a massive role to get to this point. Correct. I mean, we're not denying the existence of apartheid. We're not ex- denying the existence of systematic oppression of black people or of Jewish people in the Holocaust. What we're saying is that when an applicant goes in to get a home loan, the reason they are trusted or distrusted is not their race. Mm-hmm. The reason they are trusted or distrusted is their credit score. This speaks to a really important point, and I think it's it's a point that is really driving the identitarian movement, and that is a point around justice. I think identitarians are concerned deeply, and I have a lot of sympathy for this, with establishment of a just society. But if they're going to stop with race, where does it sort of leave them? You know, nowhere. They can't really do much with that. But if if we look at the factors that now the banks look at, like um, income, that kind of thing, that's one way of, of looking to establish, I guess, what an identitarian would call racial justice. So... If we look at opportunities that are that are available, you know, the, the resources that people have, and we try, that's one way I think that the identitarian will manage to get to this just position. We're not denying that there's injustice. There is injustice. There is a problem when more white applicants are granted home loans than black applicants, three times more white applicants. There is a problem with that. But there's two ways of solving that problem. The one way is by purely looking at race and saying we're going to reward more black people home loans regardless of other factors. The other way of resolving the problem is by fixing those factors, by saying, no, we're going to try and uplift black people's position in terms of their credit rating. We're not going to reward them a credit rating purely because they're black. We're going to fix the circumstances that lower their credit scores. 
Right, and these are two different conceptions of justice clashing against each other. One is about embracing an equality of opportunity, and the other one is about embracing an equality of outcomes regardless of how one gets there. And we'll be discussing justice and equality and all these notions in a future episode. Right, moving on to another point that Macintosh makes around the black experience, and this is one around wealth. So she seems to think that part of a black experience is essentially poverty. Yes, or at least financial instability. So the idea is that white people have money and black people don't. White people have resources, white people have wealth, black people don't. That's part of the experience of being black. But there are a couple of quite obvious counterexamples to this. Yeah, so in our country today, well, in our country very recently until today, uh, we had a president who had enormous resources and that president was black. And we now have a president who also has enormous resources, possibly even more resources. Way more resources. And he's black. So if black people have wealth and resources, then that implies that that, that lacking resources and lacking wealth is not necessary to the black experience. And in addition to that, it's not sufficient either because there's going to be some white people who lack resources and wealth. It's a strange way to try and characterize blackness, isn't it? So Macintosh is going to say this. She's going to say, are you only talking about the exceptions? The majority of black people are going to experience a lack of wealth and a lack of financial stability. Mm. And the majority of white people are going to have that wealth and financial stability. How are we going to respond to so it, it raises a dilemma for the identity politicians. Okay, so what exactly is this dilemma that it raises? So question, does President Cyril Ramaphosa, who has wealth, have a black experience? Okay, I guess there's two ways to go, right? It's either yes or no. Right. So if he does have a black experience, then that means that poverty is not a necessary feature of having a black experience because he's having a black experience without being impoverished. If the answer is no, he's not having a black experience, well, then the question is, what exactly is a black experience and what kind of experience is he having? Is he having a white experience by being wealthy? I mean, I'm sure he would take exception to that. He would say, no, I'm black and having a black experience. And that means that black experiences are independent of being black, that Black experiences are not necessarily attached to being black. Not all black experiences are had by black people because then you have this other person who's white, who's impoverished. Does that mean they're having a black experience? So what's happening is that experience, black, the black experience is then divorced from black people. Black experiences seem to be gaining metaphysical feet. They seem to be walking around independently of the experiencer. But we generally don't think that experiences can be had without experiences. Okay, so Macintosh is going to say something like this. She's going to say that we're being unfair. Not every black person is going to have every one of the 50 items in her knapsack. Yes, not every black person is going to have all 50 features of the black experience. But most black people will have most features of the experience. But now the question is, how many is most experiences? Out of the 50 features of experience that she lists, do black people need to experience 40 of them, 30 of them. And here's the problem. It's going to be arbitrary where we draw that line. So that's the first problem. So is it 30 or 40 or 20 or 10? The other problem is we don't think there's anywhere to draw that line where you're going to specify the exactly correct number of experiences or features that a black person must experience to be be black. And no white person will experience that number as well. And every black person will experience that number. It seems like an impossible task. 
Okay, Jason. So we've now had a pretty long and in-depth discussion around this notion of the black experience of the world. Yeah, and saying that there's no set of factors that are both necessary and sufficient for an experience being a black experience. Right. So we've looked at that. And now what we're going to turn to is the second way of being black, well, which we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, and that is this idea of perceiving the world in a black way, in a more accurate way than a white person would, for example, perceive the world. So let's look at this claim that no white people perceive the world the way black people do. The world. On the face of it, it just seems kind of weird, right? I think intuitively, as human beings, we have this idea that people can empathize and sympathize with each other regardless of their race. And it seems to be wanting to deny this, to deny this ability of one human being to have some sort of idea of what it must be like for another human being to go through something in particular. I mean, I think this is how you can explain, you know, people crying watching Holocaust movies, apartheid movies. Even if they're not Jewish. Even if they're not Jewish, even if they're not black. There is a strong sense in which human beings relate to each other. So two of the theorists that we've covered so far, the initial quote that you gave at the beginning of our session by Lorraine Devon Wilkie is she's a white woman saying that white people just can't understand what it's like to be black. And Peggy McIntosh with her knapsack of 50 items is white. And yet they're both giving claims about what it's like to be black. So it does seem to suggest that there is this empathy possible across racial lines from white to black, not just from black to white. Indeed. And this seems to be, I think, a critique of the position as a whole. Yeah. So we might say it's externally incoherent. We might say it doesn't match our other intuitions that we have about the world. It just doesn't gel with very, very strong ideas that we have about empathy and, and sympathy. But the racial identitarian is going to say, hold on, those external intuitions that we have about empathy across races don't hold. It appears that way, but we're wrong. So, yes, Peggy McIntosh wrote her article. Yes, Wilkie wrote her article. But actually, those articles cannot fully capture what it's like to be black. They seem to on the on the face of it, but they don't really. And that's really what their position is saying. And if we accept that, let's accept that. Because when we make external coherence objections, when we say that, well, your position doesn't gel with our other beliefs, then they'll say, well, your other beliefs are false. And then we just at loggerheads with one another. So let's accept the premise that the racial identitarian is making. Let's accept the premise that white people and black people perceive the world fundamentally differently. Let's accept that. And let's look at that claim. Let's assume that's true. And what we want to argue is that claim is entirely unremarkable. It might hold no interest at all. And the reason why is that it's not just that a person of one race can't perceive the world the way a person of a different race perceives the world, but it's the case that no two human beings, regardless of race, even if they're of the same race, perceive the world the same way. Now, why would we think this? So there's a philosopher named Thomas Nagel who wrote an article called, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? So he thought he thought about the experience or the way that bats perceive the world. And what he said was, Think about it for a moment. A bat hangs upside down in a cave all day. It's a really smelly cave because there's bat droppings everywhere. So the ammonia is thick in the air. By the way, I've been to a cave with bats, um, a bat cave. And bat caves are really stinky. Humans struggle. You can't breathe in it. There's just there's oh, wow. so much ammonia. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like inhaling bleach. 
It's awful. Okay. okay. Wow. But bats love it. <laughs> and, well, we assume bats love it. They seem very happy. <laughs> and they, they, they sleep upside down. And then at night, they go out into the world and see the world using echolocation. So they don't look at the world with their eyes primarily. They have pretty weak sight, but they have amazing, this amazing ability to perceive the world using echolocation. They can fly within enormously accurate tolerances of a centimeter purely by using their sonar sense. Now, as humans, we have no idea what that would feel like. No, we can kind of flap our arms up and down and make noises and. We could even hang upside down and spread bleach bleach on the floor, (laughs) but but we still couldn't imagine what it's like to be a bat, and we couldn't imagine what it's like to use sonar. Our physiology just doesn't seem to allow that. Yes, I mean the experience. Just just think about that experience. So, you know, you could cut a bat up. You could Mm. slice open its head and have a look at the part of its brain that's responsible or the Mm. part of its skull that's responsible for sending out those echolocations Mm. and then receiving them and interpreting them into an image. Mm. You can, you can, you can understand that part of a, of, of a bat's brain, but you can't understand what it feels like to be in that brain. You can't understand what it feels like to have those experiences. They're just so vastly different from human experiences. Okay. But hang on. How does this relate to what we're talking about? Right. So what Thomas Nagel is saying is that between species, there's no way to understand the experience or the subjectivity of what it's like to be part of a different species. Humans just can't understand what it's like to be bats, just like bats can't understand what it's like to be humans. Thomas Nagel extends that point further. So he says it's not just that there's an interspecies misunderstanding or or impossibility of experiencing what the other person is perceiving, but it exists between individuals of the same species as well. We each have our very own select subjectivity. Each person has a very select set of circumstances that have produced their lives. So you went to a very different school to the school I went to. You had different parents, a different upbringing. Mm. You have different beliefs from my beliefs, Cecilia, Mm. but we're both supposedly white. We have very different ways of perceiving the world, and I Mm. can never fully understand Mm. your perception. I can Mm. never fully understand your subjectivity because Mm. it's not in my head. I can never know really what it's like to go through the world as Jason Werbeloff. Correct, and I can never know what it's like to be Cecilia Cock. But and no, you can't, and you have no idea the trauma that comes with that surname. But anyway, let's let's look. Oh, Werbeloff is tough too. Let me tell you. Trust me, there's not different reasons. Different reasons, but (laughs) tough too. The point, but I mean, this illustrates the point. We can't understand what it's like to be each other. So, Jason, so you said you didn't go to the same school that I went to. I didn't go to the same school you went to. We studied different stuff. Let's take the case of twins to grow up in the same house. Sharing the same room, the same parents, they go to the same school, they have the same set of friends. What can we say about their experience? I mean, they might even be monozygotic twins. Right. So come, have, have exactly the same genes. Mm, look exactly the same. Yeah, but we'd still want to say they're different people. They're going to have different experiences. One of them came out of the womb first before the other. So I'm, I'm busy writing a science fiction novel about twins that are just so different. Awesome. And, and over time, their experiences change and change and change and diverge until one is just so different from the other. One lands up being really successful. The other one doesn't. And then the successful one dies and the unsuccessful one takes his place on board a ship. Anyway, the point is, the point is they're very different and the unsuccessful twin feels like an imposter and he is. Mm. People can't understand each other's subjective experiences fully. We just, we live different lives no matter how similar. So when, and this is within the same race, within the same family, 
from the same genetic structure even. So to say that people of different races don't understand each other's perceptions, well, that's entirely unremarkable. Of course they don't, because no one understands anyone else's perceptions, even if they're of the same race. But let's go back to this bat thing, right? Because some people might think that we're batshit crazy by using this bat example. It's weird, right? We're, t- we're talking about this crazy being that, that exists in such a very different way to human beings. I'm sort of seeing the possibility that the identitarian movement could do the whole leap to some strange conclusion that there's a comparison between human beings and animals. How, how are you going to deal with that? Yeah, so I, I'm definitely not saying in this analogy that black people are bats and white people are humans trying to understand bats or the other way around. All I'm saying is that the problems that different species have understanding each other are the same problems or very similar problems to the problems that people of the same race or the same species have. The analogy is not that black people are animalistic in any way and that white people are not. The analogy is that there's an interspecies problem that mirrors an intraspecies problem. And yet there may just be this funny, hurtful way and malicious way in which this example is perceived. What do you say about that? So the problem is that an idea doesn't necessarily have to be political in nature. There's an interesting theory in philosophy of literature called reader theory. And reader theory says that when you read a piece of fiction, nonfiction, when you read a sign, a symbol, and you interpret meaning onto that sign, then the sign has that meaning just because you've interpreted it. So your experience of the sign, your experience of the piece of fiction, your experience of the work is what that meaning is then in the work. So if I experience something as offensive, then it is offensive. If I experience something as being racist, then it is racist. And we see this with Zapiro's cartoons, for example. Right. So, so people have said that because there was the inclusion of a monkey in one of his cartoons, it was offensive, it was racist, because they felt offended when viewing it. The question was never, what was Zapiro's intention? The question was, what was my experience when I was reading this, when I was viewing this cartoon? And that's reader theory. So reader theory is basically the idea that objects in the world don't have intrinsic meaning. The meaning that they get comes from the way people read them. The experiences and the thoughts and the feelings and the beliefs they have when they experience or encounter that object. Now, reader theory is false. This is, this is a whole topic on its own, but I like to think that the world has meaning in and of itself. If you want to understand what an author means by a work, ask the author. Ask the author for their intentions at the time. If you want to understand what one of my science fiction novels means, ask me. The problem with reader theory is that there's all these different interpretations of what's going on, and how do you decide which interpretation is correct? Well, they're all equally correct because everyone has an experience and everyone's experiences are important. And this is really at the heart of the issue here, is that according to the racial identitarian, a person's experience of the world is what matters, not what the facts are. But what we're trying to say is it's not a person's experience that matters. It's what the facts facts are. It's not, for example, whether a person feels like they've been racially discriminated against when they apply for a home loan and they're not granted that loan. The fact of the matter is that their race had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that their credit score had something to do with it. So. I, I think this entire, this entire episode could be summed up as follows. 
we are interested as philosophers in understanding reality. We're trying to reality test. And reality is not the same thing as experience. When people experience the world a certain way, if people listen to this episode and experience it as me comparing black people to bats, it's irrelevant that they experience it that way because I'm not comparing black people to bats. So the identitarian is very good at interpreting experience in a certain way and saying my interpretation is the best experience. And they do that using power. They'll say, I'm in a, in a position where I have less power. I'm looking from the bottom up so I understand experience. But that's a very big claim to make. Why I think mm. that's true? Mm. I'm suggesting that the world has inherent meaning in it. And we need to find out what that is. Just like in this example, the inherent meaning is that there's no comparison between black people and bats. So to interpret that meaning into the experience is a mistake. I would agree with you. It is a mistake indeed. Right. So the point that we've looked at now really tests the internal coherence of the position. What we did was we granted the claim that a person of one race cannot understand the experience of people of another race. And we simply said, okay, well, it's just, it's a, it's an entirely unremarkable claim. Yeah. So when you're testing the internal coherence of a claim, what you're trying to work out is whether all the parts of a claim are consistent with each other of a position. So the identitarian position has a number of claims and we're trying to work out whether those claims are consistent with one another. And in this case, it's the claim that black people have a certain perception of the world that white people can't understand and that that's important. Those are the mm -hmm. two claims, that they have mm -hmm. a different experience or a different perception and those perceptions, that difference in perceptions is important. And we're saying that those two claims are not consistent. Why? Because it's possible that black and white people have different perceptions, but that's not unremarkable because even white people and white people have different perceptions of the world. Mm, yeah. Every Every two human beings have different perceptions right. of the world. Many thanks to our sanity checker, Mark Oppenheimer, for his invaluable input around the content of this episode. And thanks to Victor, Molly, Sean, Gugu, Tefatswa, and Ketanda for speaking to us on campus. We hope you enjoyed this episode on What Is It Like to Be Black? Tune in to our next episode, which looks at justice and racial affirmative action. This is CliffCentral.com.